Thank you. You're so good at that. Thank you. Appreciate it. And good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. If I've not met you yet, I hope to get to meet you after this service. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy, and we're going through this series on the gospel. I'm very excited about it. And so if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 is going to be helpful as we kind of drive this sermon. It's going to be helpful, and I think we're going to see Christ and his purposes much clearer today. I know I do. This passage has been helpful for me, especially when I was a younger believer. 1 Peter 1, and listen, if you don't have a device, you didn't bring a Bible, it's totally fine. We'll put it up on the screen for you. And this is him kicking off his letter, basically, and he starts off this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, According, now I want you to look for the Trinity or the three persons of God in this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. All right? It's unique. It's a unique entrance into a letter because he brings the Trinity, what we call the Trinity, out for display. And Listen, if you, if you want your lack of Bible knowledge exposed, try to explain the Trinity to somebody who does not get it, right? Because then you realize in, the, in discussing it, you don't get it either, right? It's one of those things. I remember um, my, my, the very first time I taught the, or attempted to teach the Trinity to somebody was my biology professor um, uh, when I first got radically saved in college, Right, And I just remember thinking, this sounded a lot better in my head. Like, I had it all worked out, but as I'm teaching it, I, I feel like a moron right now because he's looking at me, his head is sideways, his brow is furrowed, he just doesn't get it. He's just like waiting for me to get to the point that makes sense. And then I realize, does this make sense? I don't know that it does. I'm not sure. Go ahead and take a crack at it next time you're at a party. Find somebody that doesn't know anything about the Trinity Start off with whether or not you should vaccinate your kids, move your own way down to climate change, <laughs> and then when you're done, see if the Trinity brings the awkwardness down a little. It won't. It won't. It'll still be awkward. Mankind has clearly tried to explain it, though. The best and the most brilliant of what we have is what we call theologians or scholars have done the best they can to describe and put edges to this immeasurable and undefinable God when it comes to the Trinity. You know, and I think whenever we do the best we can to put edges to God, to describe and define him, we end up with bad theology, oftentimes, in fact. I mean, you've probably heard some of the various ways of describing the Trinity. One is that the Trinity is like phases of water, steam, ice, water, the solid part. It, it, listen, that's broken. It's, it's, a, it's a good attempt at describing something as complex as the Trinity, but it, it falls radically short. So does a three-legged stool. I've heard that one. Or a three-leafed clover. That falls radically short as well. The other day, I was at a restaurant, and I was reading, but I was overhearing the, the conversation next to me as well. I was just getting a quick little read in, and I heard somebody try to describe the Trinity to the other person. I thought, I got to hear this. I got to hear this. And she said, she said, it's just like a three-in-one shampoo. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> but then when I reflected on it, I thought, that might be one of the better ones I've heard, though. You know, give her points on originality and accuracy. That might be one of the better ones I've heard. But historians estimate that 70%, as much as 70% 
of the early heresies in the ancient church were all about how the Trinity was seen. 70%. Seven out of 10 arguments that they were having when they were trying to figure out how church should look, what theology should be believed, and what should be tossed out the window. In that early, crucial, turbulent time, seven out of 10 arguments were about the Trinity. People, well-meaning ones, doing the best they could to measure the immeasurable and define what we simply cannot define. And, and this shouldn't surprise us one bit. I mean, just as we saw last week and when we looked at the grandeur of the gospel, there's really no tape measure that we could pull out and measure the width and the length and the depth and the height and the breadth of who God is. We can't do it. We can't even explain what God did before time started. Go ahead. What do you think he did? We can't explain these things. Why? Because it's a mystery. And what does he do with mystery like that? He retains it to himself. He takes all of the swirling mystery and he holds it to himself because he is God. Augustine, he called the Trinity both a very mysterious doctrine and a dangerous one. Dangerous. I guess I can agree with that. I think my bigger question is, is it necessary? Do you need it? I mean, do you really need it? I mean, you'll probably say it's an important doctrine. Yes, Luke, we should have the Trinity. But how is it changing you? How does the Trinity and the fact that God is one and very distinctly a community of three, how does that change your Tuesday morning? How does it change your marriage? How has that affected you in the last year? Right? I mean, does it really matter? Because if we can't find relevance for us as God's people, how on earth could we make something relevant to people who are far from Christ? How can we do that? It's going to be difficult. Or does it just belong in kind of a, a junk drawer of theology? Stuff we don't throw away because we know it's important, but all, we don't use it, so we just kind of keep it shut up in that drawer. You see, this is my hope for you today. My hope is that you see the shape of the gospel story and see that it is actually the shape of God himself. The shape of your gospel is the shape of God himself, and God is one, Andy is a community of three, and both of those are true, and it's the most relevant news that we could have. It could not be more relevant than it is today. And not just relevant to theological dorks or people that like to argue over that, but relevant for your kids, relevant for your marriage, relevant for your neighbors, relevant for your social awkwardness, for your loneliness, for your bitterness, for your unforgiveness. It is relevant. I mean, I would even go so far as to say that without a good view, a good functional view of the Trinity of God and how it fits into the gospel, that you will always be stunted in your growth. You may know God has saved you, but you won't really be able to describe what exactly he has saved you into. What has he saved you into? Even with all the mystery that swirls around God that he holds to himself and all of the truth that is not disclosed to us, he has shown us what he wants us to know. He has given us good truths that we can bank on. One of these disclosures is that when you become a Christian, you are actually added to a fellowship that already existed, a fellowship that God actually shares with himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is why you catch Paul saying some things in a certain way. In Romans, he actually says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. All right, and we, we read that to know that it means siblings, many sisters, many brothers. He's the firstborn of the family, right? That we share a fellowship with him as he shares one with his Father and the Spirit. And we see John speaking in 1 John 
Stay where you're at in your passage. But he says, that which we have seen and heard, we, pre- we proclaim also to you, here it is, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right? So whenever you become a Christian, you are added into a community that existed before time. That's important to know. Another disclosure that we have is that you and I, whenever we become new creations here, Christians, we are to associate with each other and commune and fellowship with each other in such a way that it is modeled after that eternal community in a way that looks like it. We see that God is a community that defers and lifts each other up. You see the Father lifting the Son. You see the Son lifting the Father. You see the Spirit lifting both. And what that does is it shows us the shape of healthy community. It's one of deferring. It's one of preferring the other over self, right? This couldn't be more relevant. I mean, it, I, mean I mean that. Community is being reshaped faster than ever before in human history, right? Back in 1995, there was an essay written by a political scientist. His name is Robert Putnam. I'm sure no one in here read the essay because nobody reads essays like that, especially unless you're a political scientist and welcome to Legacy Church. I don't mean to make fun of you, but nobody reads your stuff, right? But this, this one got some traction, and so he wrote a book on it. It's called Bowling Alone, right? If you've ever been to a church in the last 10 years, a pastor for sure has probably pulled some statistics out of that book. Because what it does is it discusses the destruction and the collapse of what we see as community. And now, he attributes it to the individualization that technology kind of purposes. It kind of pushes us more into individual places than it does communal ones, right? And now, how he wrote this is he actually took 50 years of research, 50 years of statistics from 1950 to 2000, right? That's it, just those 50, the last half of the 21st century. And this is what he found out, just a couple statistics. Club attendance, right? Club meetings, the attendance fell by almost 60%. People invited others over into their home 50% less in 2000 than they did in 1950. Half as much, right? Here's what's shocking. All of this research was done on statistics that came out before Facebook, before social media, right? Now, social media has done a lot of really good things, and it has also radically individualized us, individualized us, teaching lonely people that friends are actually followers and followers are actually friends and that you are an influencer if you get people to engage your post in any, any degree. You've heard this. This isn't new to you. We've talked about this before, even from this pulpit. But what's interesting is that if you have heard me talk about it before, it's likely, not, not assured, it's likely that you do remember a time before social media. There was a back in the day for you right? For Generation Z and younger, my, my, my older two kids, they have zero understanding of any existence without social media. There is no back in the day before social media. There is no back in the day before a like button. All they know is community that has shifted and moved and evolved because of things like a like button or a post or a share. It's interesting when you really think about it. So, There could not be a more relevant piece of doctrine that we have in the Bible that is given to us than how we are to associate with each other. Let me me explain what I mean. There is this thing, and I'm not about to harp on it, by the way. I know you think I'm going to as soon as I bring it up, but this cultural phenomenon that is the Peloton bike, right? 
okay? If you don't know what it is, go and Google it when you get home, but you, I'm telling you, you will get blasted by ads from here until Jesus comes back if you do, right? There'll be Peloton ads on everything, right? And it's not just Peloton, there's others too, right? And you can spend a lot of money on all of them. Echelon makes a bike, Nordic Track is making a bike. I, I saw one this morning that Wahoo is kicking out. That's a $4,000 bike. I mean, you could spend as little or as much as you want to get a smart bike. Now, if you don't know what a Peloton is, right? A Peloton is a bike, it's a well-made spin bike, can't really call it spin, that's trademarked. It's a bike that looks like a spin bike, has a heavy flywheel on it and a large screen on the front of it, and that screen will show you all of your biometrics, your wattage, your heart rate, probably your VO2, I'm not quite sure. It shows you everything that you'd ever want to know, and you can drop into live spin classes broadcast from New York, and they have up to 15 a day, right? It's pretty awesome when you think about it. What's it? Now, what's even more interesting is if you look at the history of the company, the founders of Peloton, the company, they don't want you to look at that bike as a fitness experience. They want you to see that bike as a communal experience. They want you to understand that that is how you are to connect with others. This is a little bit of out of their mission statement, right? Mission statement. To connect the world through fitness, empowering people to be the best versions of themselves. Now listen, I'm not slamming this company. I'd use one of these if I had one. I'd wear it out. I like the idea of it. I'm resolved that if I wait another year, Craigslist will be full of them. I'll just grab one then. But what I would like to do is just look at the irony of the name and the commentary it has about how we handle community. Some of you might already know this, but Peloton is a French word. A Peloton is a group of cyclists on, on cycle. On, on bikes that are going the same place at the same time at the right pace and they are grouped tightly together, right? That's, that's a peloton of bikes. It could be three, it could be 300. It's a peloton, right? I've been in over 100 of these things and, and you've seen them. You've seen them when you're driving down the road, you're trying to figure out how to get around them. Like what's the etiquette for getting around these guys? Do I honk my horn? Do I, should I be mad? Are they doing what they're supposed to? Are they not, right? You've seen them or you've seen them on TV. What you might not know is how close they are to each other. They, they are inches from each other, right? When I'm in that, my, my front tire is maybe three inches off of the tire in front of me. Three, three inches off the tire in front of me. And I know that the person behind me, their front tire is three inches off of my back tire. And I'm probably just as close to the person on my right and the person on my left, right? Why? Why would you ever be that close? Because at six or seven inches, you start catching their draft and it starts pushing you. But there's actually a purpose in being in a Peloton, right? Because you save wattage. I save up to 10, 15% of the watts that I put out. It's like giving me free, free speed. I, I, I get four miles per hour of free speed just by being tightly grouped. But I've actually fallen off of these before. I've actually taken a break or reached down for my water at the wrong time and they leave me and that three inches turns into like two foot. And it's almost like someone's pushing you back, right? That's why people ride in a Peloton. It's the way birds fly in the air. It's, NASCAR has figured this out a long time ago. But what I want you to know is that they are closely together. The proximity couldn't be tighter. They sweat on each other. We share each other's food and water. I've held people's handlebars while they've reached down to mess with their bike a little bit, right? Talking to each other. We're vulnerable before each other. If I hear brakes starting to be tapped, seven bikes up, I better start being about the business of tapping my brakes immediately. I've been in situations where a bike, 20 bikes up, has fallen down, and you have a second to figure out whether you're going to go right over them, whether you're going to lay your bike down, what you're going to do. You're liable. We defer. We push each other. We draft each other. We help each other fix each other's bikes. Friendships are built. This togetherness, this Peloton, 
has turned into a solo spin bike in a home. Same word, different world. We're in a culture now that would rather ride on a Peloton than be in one. It's just easier. It's far faster. It's easier, simpler, safer. I'm not trying to denounce innovation or technology. I don't think it's a curse to us. I'm not hoping that we all go back to yesterday. I'm not mad at Peloton or Instagram. I'm not mad at computers. I'm just hoping to show you that the biblical idea of community is more at risk when society redefines the word for us. The idea of community and fellowship is at risk when culture defines what it is and what it is not. Therefore, when you and I, when we speak about this thing called community, what are we basing it off of? How do we define the word? Because my goal isn't to reach back to 1920 and say that's when they had community. Oh, back when they had people over for dinner. That's when community was. Community is actually built off of something eternal. We have an eternal template. Community existed before time began. Fellowship existed long before fellowship halls were being built. And I think so many of the people that we see during the week, so many of the friends that we have, have friends, and then they don't have friends. They have a profile, and on their best days, it's probably 75% true. I just don't think Putnam could have ever envisioned where we would come so quickly after he wrote that essay in that book. We've never needed gospel-centered community as bad as we do today. But being inches apart, that's hard. It's harder. It has liability in it, right? Now listen, when you hear me say community, don't hear me say church. Although we believe that the local church is where community is found, you can be in a local church and not knit into the fabric of what we would call community or fellowship. And I get it. Listen, and if that's you, and you're not knit into a, a situation where you are deeply known and you know others deeply and you are proximally, you're inches apart from somebody often, if that's you, I, I get why you're not doing it. Because you have bruises and it's hard. Somewhere in your past, somebody rejected you, hurt you, inconvenienced you, left you, and it hurts. And you, I mean, listen, I'm with you. I've got the same bruises you do. And it makes us leery of reinvesting our life into somebody else. It makes us slow to do it, doesn't it? We don't want to be tight with people again. Investing ourselves in such a way that we open up our lives again and, in, and incur whatever pain comes, it just doesn't feel worth it. And that's why very few people know what you're really struggling with, right? If that's you, that's why you might have one person in your life, maybe, but you don't have people that know you so well that when you walk in a room, they intuit what's going on and they know when you're lying to them as well. That's different. That's what it means to be inches apart. And when we refuse to knit ourselves into the tight proximity of God's community, what we see as the local church, that's not a social problem. That's a gospel-level fracture. It's a misunderstanding of what the gospel has reached us and saved us into. It's a gospel-sized problem. Because let, let me just say that secluded living, that is inconsistent with Christianity. That is moving against the grain. Secluded living is inconsistent with Christianity. There's a professor. His name is Joseph Hellerman. He says it better than I do. He says, we do not find an unchurched Christian in the New Testament. Not there. A person was not saved for the sole purpose of enjoying a personal relationship with God. A person is saved to community. 
It's a community. And what kind of community? It's the one that is laid out for us with the example of the Trinity, how God is one and he is a community of three. So listen, if the Trinity and this community of God that I've been referring to, if that's a blurry piece of knowledge for you, my prayer is that you grow today and that your hair just stands up on end as you hear about the grandeur of God and that the way that your mind sees God is bigger and it doesn't shrink back to the way it was when you walked in. I mean, it's important to know some things about God. One is that he's self-sufficient. This is something we rarely think about. But before the creation, the triune God was happy with himself. He was happy, infinite, infinitely happy with himself. He didn't need anything to make him happy. He still doesn't need anything to make him happy. He doesn't need us to complete him. He's not recruiting us because of our mad skills and our incredible sense of humor. I mean, as much as the gospel changes you, and that's good that the gospel changes you to live differently for his life. The gospel, is, it begins with his glory in mind, and it ends with his glory in mind. I'm saying this because there is a bad piece of theology I've seen weave through churches of different shapes and sizes, and that is a theology that God needed the cross as bad as we did. That he was in some sort of a social deficit and wasn't ever complete until Jesus did what he did. Let me tell you, you got to lose that. That is not true. Beware of any theology that reduces the size of God and makes him needy. He's not needy. He's not in deficit, waiting for us to grace him with our magnificent presence. Before creation, he was already complete in glory in the community of the person of God. That's just not my opinion either. In John, we see Jesus talking to the Father. This is a beautiful moment of the community of God that you see in action. You see God the Son speaking, pouring his life out, and communicating with his Father. And he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. Hey, God, we shared something. We shared a glory before this creation thing even started. Give me that glory again. Lift me in this moment. Genesis 1-2, we actually have a picture of what that looked like. The second verse in your Bible. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And listen, that's a long forecast. That's throwing the deep, Paul, knowing that there would be another day that the Spirit of God would hover over your soul, taking what was chaotic and out of shape and bringing order and peace to it. Right? The Spirit would do the same thing again in our lives. And then we see... Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Don't read that like God hit his head and didn't know how to speak in that moment or like he was talking to the angels. I've heard that one. Nope, nope, nope. He was not talking to angels. He was speaking to himself, right? God was already in community. And not only is God self-sufficient in himself and without any deficit, and not only does he collaborate and defer when it comes to creation, we see beautiful indicators in the passages of Scripture that he defers and he collaborates with himself on your salvation, on how you became a Christian. Think about it. The Father lovingly sends the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, invests his Son, sends his Son, and his Son is pleased to do it. Jesus defers. He prefers the glory of the Father, and he goes willingly, which is what we see in the Bible. The Son bears our sins willingly. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, and he's talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. I mean, I can't think of a passage in the Bible that shows the steady hand of Jesus more than this one. Listen, you could be sad about what your sins did to God. You don't need to pity Jesus in this moment at all. He's not one to be pitied. He's in total control. He's saying, I lay it down. We throw our rocks, and we're villains for sure, and we murdered God on the cross. He sacrificed himself on the cross all at the same time. He tackled the cross. He didn't whine or whimper his way there. He did not regret his movement towards this shameful death. He forfeited his life, but it wasn't from a position of weakness. It was from a position of strength that he gave his life. So he willingly goes, preferring the glory of the Father and the plan of the Father. And then the Spirit effectively applies this good work to you. Applies it. Because up until this point, it's just good news, but it's not necessarily good news for you. In Ephesians 1.13, we see Paul say, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So all of this good news is applied by the Holy Spirit. I mean, without this work, it's just a really good story, right? And this is part of what it looks like. I'm going to flip back, and this is going to be in the book of Ezekiel. You can, again, stay where you're at. This is just two verses out of the 36th chapter. And we see God speaking to people, his nation, and he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your salvation. He changes your heart. The day before, you had no affections. You had no remorse over what your sin did. The next day, you do. You didn't just get smarter. The, the Holy Spirit came and changed your heart. And gave you a feeling one, one that could respond, right? And then gave you conviction, which is what the Holy Spirit does. And then actually gives you and applies this great work. And then from that point on, empowers you to walk a life that glorifies the Lord. So what we see is the Son provides the sacrifice, the Father accepts the sacrifice, the Spirit applies the sacrifice, right? There is a triune collaboration in your salvation. Now, why did I take you through that nickel tour? What I want you to see is how much you contribute to this. Impressive, right? You sure were awesome. I mean, he did all the work. He lifted all the weight. He didn't even ask you for your opinion on the thing. He just came and he did what it was good to him. I like how Jared Wilson says it. He says, God is praying for it himself, to himself. He is bestowing it himself, through himself. He is declaring himself, through himself, authoritatively. He says, we are saved from God to God, by God, through God, and for God. It sounds creative. It sounds like he worked really hard on that sentence, right? You almost have to read it three or four times to really get what he's trying to say. He took it. He took it from Paul. Paul in Romans, he says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, even the gospel. Even the gospel. Listen, friends, your God is so brilliant and so good that he built his gospel itself on the back of the Trinity. Man, he designed it. He is the architect. He executed it because he is the actuator. He applied it. Great, Luke, but what does this have to do with community? You know, when you look at the Great Commission, which we've heard a bunch, in Matthew 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice something there. We miss this often. We are baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not names. That's actually a singular word. That's not just an English mistake either. If you look at the understructure of that word, that is a singular word. One name, one God, three distinct people. And this is a model for you and me. We play invested roles in each other as we prefer each other and defer to each other. For whose glory? Not yours. The glory of the Father. Just look, look at the beauty of what God has done. He designs redemption and rescue. He designed it, thought it, and then he sends the Son. The Son gladly goes, and then the Spirit comes and leads the Son into the wilderness, and the Son defers. And then the Son later on sends the Spirit to his church, and the Spirit defers and does so. The Spirit is pleased to lift everyone's gaze to see who Christ is. You see the Father lifting the Son. You see the Son Lifting the Father, you see the Spirit lifting everyone's eyes to see both and applying this truth. You see the community of God traffic in kindness and investment, all for the glory of God. This is what you don't see. Self-serving, self-focus, individual over community, being alone, being secluded. Even redemption itself is a community endeavor. Friends, this is our playbook. This is our playbook. And you know when you're close to running the plays correctly? When you feel pain. When you feel the pain of it all, of this investment. You know that you have found functional, gospel-centered community, not when you find your most bestest friends ever, but whenever you have found strain and inconvenience and are put in places where you have to prefer and lay down your own preferences. That's going to hurt. And this is when most people bail, right? And it's usually because they're hurt. And they know what it takes to invest because they've done it before. And they know how quickly they lost that investment. And they know how much that hurt. So what they do to heal is they kind of cocoon themselves with smiles. They give shallow investment. But what they're really looking for is a place where they feel like they can invest and never be hurt again. Right? Let me tell you, this doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist. You will never, you will never find a place where when you give your life and you sow into something that you will remain unhurt. Doesn't, doesn't work that way. I mean, here's, here's a good example, Hebrews 10. This passage, I love it, and it bothers me all at the same time. The author of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, simple passage. But if I take it seriously, I mean, if I really take this seriously, it's going to cost me. Oh, it's going to cost me. I mean, I have to be present, which means I can't neglect meeting together. That means i got to show up to stuff. That means I have to take a good hard look at my calendar and say no to some things that I could be at that I'm not at. I have to say no. The things that I might enjoy doing. I have to say no to things that maybe I kind of agreed to a long time ago. I have to say no to things that are easier, safer. My calendar is going to take some dents. But then it gets even more costly. 
Because then I have to take the time to notice where you need to be stirred up, because that's not always obvious, right? I have to spend my attention span on you. Well, that's tough, because I like spending it on myself. (laughs) I like thinking about my own life. I don't want to take the time to think about your life, but that's what it means. For me to stir you up, i got to know why you even need to be stirred up. Why aren't you stirred up now? What the, what's the problem? Then it gets even more costly because then I have to consider how best to do this, which means I have yet to think about you more. I have to consider you deeper because what might stir me up and minister to me might not work for you, which means I need to think about your context, your history, your pain, your struggle, which means I need to think about you a lot longer than I'm used to thinking about anybody else. Why? Because I like to think about myself. I don't want to think about you. But then it gets even costlier because then I have to find the courage to actually stir you up and then deal with the awkwardness that is likely to come when you don't receive it like I want you to receive it. We don't always get applause and a smile and a thank you card when we try to stir somebody up, do we? doesn't always come with some beautiful reciprocation, a hug, and a thank you. Sometimes it gets worse than that. Sometimes it gets pushed back. Bitterness, unforgiveness, anger. You see... My role in stirring you up is going to cost me, but it will be for your sake. I will have to prefer you over me and defer my comfort and my glory for the glory of God, right? And some of you, you know how difficult this is. How did it go the last time you tried to stir somebody up and they didn't take it well and were really picking up what you were putting down quite like you thought it was going to go? How'd that go? Here's the thing. Some of you, you don't know because you've never done it. You've played the safe course. You know that there's a touchy spot and you've swerved. You thought, ah, I don't want to make a thing. I don't want to do it. I don't want to make a thing out of this. And so you just kind of, you went around it. Some of you, you do know what I'm talking about, not because you've done it, because somebody did it to you and you were put in the place of being stirred up. How did that feel? Do you see how costly this gets? Preferring others over yourself. I mean, what if we we take Galatians 6.2, which takes it one step further, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Man, if I take that seriously, it's going to cost me. I have enough burdens. I have enough problems than to take yours and add them to my shoulders. To carry your weight on top of my weight is going to cost me. I already have a heavy load. I mean, this is the reality of these passages. But can I just tell you, We're not going to tell you that you should do these things because that's the right thing to do. I'm here to tell you that you are free to do these things. You're free. You're free to do this because you are no longer enslaved to look after number one. You don't have to just look at yourself above all things. Why? Because God has already looked after you. He's deeply considered you already. He's deeply considered you. He's thought about everything. He's thought about you since before time began. Since before there was matter, he has considered you deeply and thought for you and provided for you. And he's given you the freedom from having to protect yourself. Free to to give your life. Free to lose yourself. Free to prefer others. That is the shape of the life of Christ. You're free to do this because even your burdens have been lifted. Even your burdens. This is Matthew saying something very beautiful to some very oppressed people saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. 
You see, Jesus, just as Jesus was sent to carry our burdens and our most ultimate burden, because some of you are probably thinking, but he hasn't carried all of my burdens. I walked in here with some. I still have some. He isn't taking those. He's taking your most ultimate burden, the burden of never being accepted before God, the burden of always having to make yourself look a certain way to be righteous before God so that God smiles upon you and calls you. So he's taken that away. That burden's gone. Your most ultimate of burdens has been erased. And he has freed you to pick up the burdens of those around you. Let me just tell you, this is how we grow. This is how we grow, by investing in community in such a way that prefers other people over self. I mean, we are imperfect people called to walk in very tight proximity, inches, with other very imperfect people. And we're called to heavily invest in each other over a long amount of time. And this is not optional. This is imperative for growth and grace. If you want to grow, this is not an option. This is imperative. This is the way God established how we grow. Now, you can grow outside of community, but you won't grow in a healthy direction. You'll grow misshapen, deformed looking. And I know, like I said earlier, you think that by protecting yourself with the cocoon of safety that you're healing correctly. I'm not telling you that you're not healing. I'm saying you probably are healing. It's healing in a wrong direction like a broken bone that wasn't set right, deformed. Because hear me, the local church is messy. We've all experienced some level of disappointment in this thing that we call fellowship, community. If you've never been burned or rejected or hurt, you've never been in community. If you've never been taken advantage of or overextended, you've never been in community. If you've never mourned the loss of a friendship, You've never been in community. In fact, I can promise you, I could promise you pain. I could promise you strain if you subscribe to this gospel-shaped, trinity-infused thing that we call community. That's what I can promise you, is that it'll cost you. And then when you're done paying the dues, it'll cost you more. And then it'll cost you more, and then it'll cost you even more. And Jesus understands this. He knows better than anyone in this room the costliness of preferring others over himself, the costliness of living in community. He entered this messy and broken world, and this messy and broken world broke him. But he deferred. He deferred to the plan and the glory of the Father and preferred you with passion over himself. And then lovingly and considerately, he sent the Holy Spirit to us, to change us, who gladly deferred, whose ever pleasure is to lift your eyes and give you a creativity and a fascination with who God is. But for us to embrace community, real community, it entails a death. That we see. I've heard others call it the crucifixion of community. I find that to be a little bit morose. That's why I don't use it very often. But I know it, it feels right. Because it means dying to all of our desires and our preferences and our expectations. But what is on the other side of this crucifixion if not for resurrection? You see, when you suffer in a Christ-shaped way, you share something with Christ that you couldn't get any other way. The intimacy that you experience with Jesus, that you love and you want to get bigger, there are some ways that it will only get larger if you suffer in a very similar way that Christ has suffered. Rejection, being abandoned, being inconvenienced, not having love that you pour out be reciprocated, being graceful but being met with, with rocks, 
being a saint, but being handled like a villain. These are things that Christ suffered through. And when you suffer along that same path, when you walk that same path, you at that time, you at that time can have at least the conviction and the confidence that I am suffering in the way that Christ has suffered and I'm sharing something with me or with him. And he is with me, sharing this with me. And he understands. And we've got this thing we didn't have before, but now I have it. And when you share that with Christ, when resurrection comes, the life that comes after such a suffering, you share that with him as well. I mean, as much as Hebrews and Galatians, as much as it costs me, as much as it is hard for me to invest in others, as a reward, I get more Jesus. That's my reward. I get more Jesus. And my heart couldn't be happier about it. So listen, here's some hard application for you before we wrap this up. And I, I mean hard, both intangible and hard and not easy, right? And one is just to become bilingual with those around you. Learn the language of those that you're in tight proximity with, right? What is their language? What's their context and their story? Think of somebody, maybe not your spouse or your family, somebody at work that you've been praying for, somebody far from Christ. Do you know their story? Maybe it's somebody in this room. Do you know their story? Their fears, their dreams, their hopes. If you needed to stir them up, what would you say? Would it make sense to them? Would it resonate with them? I mean, this is our hope in DNA groups at Legacy. I mean, if you've been in a missional community group here, you know that's when things start to get a lot closer, right? But DNA groups, that's where things get real. This is kind of our hope. That as you walk in tight proximity, inches away with somebody, and you go in a long direction for a long time, you start to hear and learn the story of others so that you are able to speak life into those situations, challenge them, encourage them in a gospel-centered way that they could respond to because you've listened to them so long. You can speak their language. You know, attendance is a value, which is why we hear Peter say, don't neglect it. But do you prefer those around you to the point where you know them well? Do you prefer them to the point where it costs you? You see, there's room to repent in a passage like this. At what point, ask yourself, at what point would you rather ride a Peloton than be in one? At what point would you rather just be alone? It's just easier, is it not? At what point would you just rather be alone? Where is Trinitarian Gospel-centered community so costly for you. Let me say that differently. What do you prize more than heavy investment in others? These are the things that we have to ask ourselves whenever we repent, whenever we turn. And friends, listen, there's great room to celebrate in this as well. I mean, just think, just think for a moment. Just with your imagination, try to... I mean, God in his mysterious majesty considered us by name before time. It's not like he said a bunch of people over here and a bunch of people over there, and we'll figure it out as time goes on. Before time even started, he knew you down to how many hairs on your head, how many times your heart would beat, your deepest dreams, your deepest fears. He knew you. Consider that, the weight of it. And then he sends Jesus to secure you, to rescue you. And that little plan was set up before creation as well. 
And then right at the perfect time, right at the perfect time, as the Bible likes to say, when, when time was pregnant, when right, at the, right at the exact moment, the Holy Spirit changes your heart and then changed you forever. And that, too, was planned since before there was even a beginning. It's amazing, isn't it? It's an amazing how much you were loved and how much interplay and collaboration there was with God himself with you in mind, with you in mind. That one day we would be here in a room like this, listening to a passage like this, and knowing what the shape of community is supposed to look like and the price tag that comes with it, which is fascinating. We're about to take communion here in a little bit, which is a signature of this work that I'm talking about. I mean, the climax of the community of God for you is Jesus preferring you over his very own life. So when we remember, as Jesus says, as you do this in remembrance of me, when we take communion, I want you to remember the collaboration of God, of the community of God, what you are rescued into. Go ahead and stand with me. And listen, if you're here and you are not a Christian, maybe you're, you're very aware that you're not a Christian, maybe you're not even sure if you are or not, let me ask you a question. Is it so strange that you would be considered so deeply? Is that so strange? I love how the psalmist says, what is man that you are so mindful of him? What is man that you are so mindful of him? Listen, God has a beautiful plan. God has a beautiful plan. And he's building a beautiful church for his beautiful kingdom. And far more important than anything I just said is that it's for his glory. That his glory was before all of this, and it ends with his glory. Let me pray for you that God would change your heart, God would change my heart, and God would change this city. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us, and Lord, we pray for changed hearts. Lord, I've been a Christian for a quarter of a century, and I still feel the pain and the strain of preferring others over myself, of lifting others of deferring to others, of giving when I know I won't get back, of saying no to, to myself to say yes to others, to decreasing so others can increase, to taking a hit so others can live, to giving grace when I know I'll be mistreated. It is hard. Some days I don't feel like I'm any better off than I was 25 years ago. Lord, outside of your Holy Spirit changing us, we can build clubs here. We will never build community here. So Father, help us be a church not of clubs or of teams or of just pools of people that have affinity together, but community. Not just community from the 1920s, not just community where, where we, we like each other and we're, we're willing to take risks for each other, but community that is even modeled after the Trinity itself. Lord, help us build something beautiful. Lord, we, just, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your, your patience and your thoughtfulness. Who are we exactly that you would be this mindful of us? That since before time began, not only did you consider us, you built this whole rescue plan complete with the perfect timing and the perfect, the perfect moment. God, that, that you were mindful of us. Give us a sinking feeling. Expand our creativity to see you greater. 
that we would see your gospel with more beauty. And Lord, for those in here who are far from you or who are struggling, Father, I pray that you would change the scope of what they see, that you would change their hearts. Lord, that they, even if they walked in with a heart that does not feel, that does not see the blood on their hands and then the blood on the cross, Father, that you would show them exactly what that looks like. That maybe they've never had a grand vision of who you are, but now they do. Lord, that you would even be changing hearts. And Father, I just feel compelled to pray for those in this room with bruises from whatever the last situation is that they threw both feet into. Ah, Lord, the hesitancy, the slowness to do something like that again. It's real. So Father, that you would give us, I guess, the the confidence that yes, we are free to give all of ourselves to community, even knowing ahead of time that we're likely to get burned. Because we're imperfect people working with imperfect people. But knowing that because the the reward is more of you, we're, we're more than willing to come in last place, more than willing to be lowered, more than willing to not be invited, to be ghosted, more than willing to be left in the dust because we get more of you. Lord, help us invest not a piece of our life, but all of our life into each other. Help us prefer each other and even the city over ourselves, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.